0: to the reading of the Sioux City Journal newspaper dated Wednesday, January the 18th, 2023. I'm your reader, Kevin Boucher. Headline, Pipelines Take to the Courts to Gain Access for Surveys in Siouxland, and this article was written by reporter Nick Hytrek denied access to survey some parcels of land along proposed liquid carbon dioxide pipeline routes, developers have sought rulings from Iowa judges ordering landowners to allow the surveys to proceed. New lawsuits in Clay and Sioux counties were filed in December bringing the total number of nine filed by either Summit Carbon Solutions or Navigator Heartland Greenway In all cases, though, the companies are seeking injunctions to prohibit landowners from denying survey crews entrance to their land to study the proposed pipeline routes. Landowners have filed counterclaims in many of these places, arguing that Iowa's laws giving pipeline companies the right of entry to private land to survey and examine it are unconstitutional. Both are tactics seldom seen before in Iowa. As of right now in Iowa, state law clearly authorizes enforcement of survey access by a company by injunction. And that's according to Dan Tormey. Now, he's a spokesman for the Iowa Utilities Board, which receives and rules on permit applications for underground. To the IUB's knowledge, lawsuits by pipeline companies to gain access to a landowner's property to survey have been rare in the past. And if a landowner resists surveying, the issue is usually addressed without litigation, Tormey said. Tormey said the IUB has no information on the number of landowners refusing to let surveyors onto their land either now or during past pipeline projects. And he said the length of the proposed CO2 pipelines and the large number of landowners affected might be a factor. Navigator Corporation plans to build a 1,300-mile pipeline collecting liquid CO2 from ethanol plants and fertilizer processors in Iowa, Nebraska, South Dakota, Minnesota and Illinois, and transport it to a site in Illinois where it'll be injected deep beneath the surface. Now, this pipeline would stretch some 900 miles across 36 Iowa counties, including several here in Siouxland. Summit's plans call for a 2,000 mile pipeline collect, uh, collecting CO2 from ethanol plants in Iowa, Nebraska, South Dakota, Minnesota, and North Dakota, and they would like to pipe it all to a site in North Dakota where it'll be injected deep underground. And of the 30 Iowa counties on the route, many again are in Siouxland. Permit applications for both are with before the IUB. They don't know when a decision will be made. And both projects have their staunch opponents, evidenced by landowners' unwillingness to allow surveyors on their property. Navigator filed lawsuits against landowners in Woodbury, Clay, and Butler counties in August. Some it sued in Dickinson, Hardin, and Cosseth counties in September, and in Clay and Sioux counties on December the 15th. In the suits and the request for injunctions, Summit Company says landowners have refused to accept delivery of a second letter providing notice of the intent to enter their property to survey it. While Summit Carbon Solutions is not able to comment on the specifics of pending litigation, it's important to note that the overwhelming majority of survey work done to this point has involved the landowner voluntarily offering the company permission to access their land. And there have been a limited number of instances where ILO, a law, has been invoked to allow this critical work to continue, summit said in a statement. Elizabeth Burns Thompson, Navigator's Vice President of Government and Public Affairs for the company, also noted the majority of landowners have granted surveyor's access. What we don't hear about is how much survey work was done voluntarily, she said. You see, surveys are an incredibly important part of the process, and we think the code and the law is pretty clear as to notification and the steps to complete that survey. We truly want to be collaborative and follow the letter of the law. Landowners who are resisting have banded together. They have hired many attorneys and are coordinating their opposition. And it's likely due in part to experiences with the Dakota Access oil pipeline, which has been completed since 2017, and this Dakota Access pipeline traverses many of the same counties in the path of the proposed CO2 pipelines. And that is a quote from Jess Mazur, Conservation Program Coordinator for the Sierra Club, Iowa chapter. In many cases, crop yield losses because of soil disruption from pipeline installation has been greater than what farmers were told to expect by Dakota Access. And payments from the company have not made up for the losses And with that information in hand, farmers then are less likely to willingly give permission to have their land disturbed, much less surveyed, Mazur said. The filing of lawsuits, however, caught opponents by surprise, Mazur said, but has solidified opposition, too. It just made people upset and even more steadfast in their opposition, she said. And if they're really just going to sue anyone who gets in their way, what kind of business practice is that? And do we want those kinds of companies here in Iowa? Vicky and William Hulsey of Moville, Iowa, were sued by Navigator in August after refusing to allow surveyors onto their land in northern Woodbury County, they responded with the claim that Iowa's laws giving pipelines the right to enter their land are unconstitutional. And then this past September, a judge in September denied Navigator's request for an injunction that would have enabled surveys to enter, surveyors to enter the host's land. And a trial is scheduled for February the 14th, although that same judge is considering Navigator's motion for summary judgment, seeking a ruling in its favor before trial. A trial in Navigator's lawsuit against Martin Koenig of Sioux Rapids, Rapids, Iowa, is scheduled for April the 19th in Clay County, Iowa. The Butler County cases were consolidated, and those uh, cases are scheduled for trial later in May. Vicki Holtz told the journal last fall that she and other landowners are doing what they believe is right, and they want owners to know they're not powerless against the pipeline companies. I just want to be an example that you can stand up for yourself, she said. You can stand up and say no, this is my land. I pay the insurance, I pay the property taxes. Some its lawsuits have yet to be scheduled for trial. Dennis and Carrie King of Dickens in Clay County and, and the Wilmer Holstein Revocable Trust in Sioux Center in Sioux County have yet to reply to the lawsuits. And the headline for this next article, Indiana Man Arrested After toddler Shown on Live TV With a Handgun. And this article was written by CNN. A man was arrested in Beach Grove, Indiana, after video was shown on live television of a toddler, reportedly the man's son, waving and pulling the trigger of a handgun. The video was aired by Reel's series, On Patrol Live!, During the television show's live broadcast on Saturday, January the 14th, according to a news release, a police incident report obtained by CNN affiliate WTHR said Shane Osborne faces a charge of child neglect. The report also lists ring camera footage that was obtained and uploaded to a police server, A 9mm gun was found at the scene and it had 15 rounds in the magazine, but no rounds were in the gun's chamber, the report said. Osborne is expected to appear in court later this week. Headline for this next article, from the Capitol Notebook, Kaufman elected to another term as GOP State Chair. And this article was written by reporter Kayla McCullough. The man who has overseen wild success for Iowa Republican candidates and the preservation of Iowa Republicans' first-in-the-nation presidential caucus status has been elected to lead the state party for another two years. Jeff Kaufman was unanimously re-elected this past Saturday as the chair of the Republican Party of Iowa. Kaufman, a community college history professor from Wilton, was given the vote of confidence by the state's Central Committee. It'll be term number five for Kaufman. Since 2015, when Kaufman was first elected to this first term, Iowa's congressional delegation has gone from split to entirely Republican, and the state government has gone from split control to all Republican control. And in 2024, Iowa Republicans once again will start the National Party's presidential nominating process with the Iowa caucuses. The Iowa Democrats were stripped of their first-in-the-nation status last year. Over the past eight years, Iowa Republicans have achieved spectacular victories for the people of this great state, Kaufman said in a statement and I am honored to remain at the helm of this great organization and see our party through another first in the nation caucus and ultimately victory again in 2024. Linda Upmeyer, a former Iowa House speaker from Clear Lake, Iowa, was unanimously re-elected as the state party's co-chair. Headline... Lawsuit filed against Sioux City School District and staff due to alleged claims made about dirt. And this article was written by uh, Sioux City Journal reporter Caitlin Yamada. Former Iowa State Senator Richard Bertrand is suing members of the Sioux City Community School District due to comments made calling him a thief and a, quote, dirt devil resulting in the loss of a land development opportunity. Bertrand, now a businessman and developer, filed a defamation lawsuit against the school district, Greenwell, and former District Operations Director, Brian Farindels, claiming comments made by the parties resulted in the loss of over $7.9 million in profits. The lawsuit claims that during a telephone call, On January 2nd, Greenwell claimed that Bertrand had stolen dirt from the North High Outer Drive project and Greenwell was not interested in selling the land to a dirt devil who, quote, stole from the district. The suit also states, Greenwell claimed that he would not be muscled or bullied by Bertrand and was not drinking the Kool-Aid. When asked about where Greenwell had heard the claims, Bertrand was told that Farindaults had made them starting in 2018. Bertrand claims that interim superintendent Rod Earlywine and current operations director Tim Paul were supportive of the sale before the call with Greenwell. Due to this, he entered into a letter of intent to sell some of the property to Roy Perry Construction for three apartment buildings. Now, he also complains that he began discussions with the city of Sioux City to develop 120 homes on the land and property that he currently owns. After the call, though, with Greenwell, Roy Perry Construction withdrew its offer to purchase due to potential litigation. Bertrand is suing the three entities for defamation and is seeking full compensation for the $7.9 million loss in profits he claims came from the comments. Headline, Children's Hospital is planning a $46 million outpatient center. And this article was written by reporter Julie Anderson of the Omaha World-Herald-Newspaper. Children's Hospital and Medical Center will soon begin construction on a 46,060,000-square-foot pediatric outpatient center located at 204th and Harrison Streets. Kathy English, Children's Executive Vice President and the Chief Operating Officer, said the facility will provide more convenient access for children and families who, traveled for, who travel from West Omaha and beyond to the hospital campus, which is located near 84th Street and West Dodge Road, to see specialists for outpatient care. More than 50% of the children served currently come from outside the greater Omaha area. The new facility, she said, also will allow children to expand and see more children. We're pretty full here and we need more space, English said. The two-story facility is slated to open in the spring of 2024. The new 10-acre site also has room for a second phase of construction, she said, Children's eventually anticipates moving the outpatient surgery center, which is now located in the Village Point area, to this new location. We're going to try to make this a western hub for us, English said. One part of the new outpatient center will house orthopedics and sports medicine, That area will include a glass-enclosed indoor space, as well as children's first outdoor rehabilitation space. Children rehabilitate by playing, English said. So we're going to have part of the outdoor space with trails and stepping stones that would challenge kids to move. Outdoor spaces for sports medicine patients will include areas where youths can run and kick balls. And so we give them space to rehab that would have the kinds of activities that would normally be done as kids, she said. Also, cardiac and pulmonary services will also be available, and eight other specialties will rotate through as needed. The center also will house a children's physician's primary care clinic, as well as radiology and lab services, nutritional care, and some behavioral health services. In addition to the outpatient rehabilitation spaces, English said, the health system is taking lessons that they learned from COVID-19 in designing facility. And the headline for this article, Woodbury County Auditor Pat Gill says signatures tipped him off to possible voter fraud by supervisor's wife, And this story was written and reported on by reporter Nick Heitrack. Prior to the 2020 general election, a Woodbury County voter attending Iowa State University visited the Iowa Secretary of State's office website to request an absentee ballot. And after entering her voter identification information, the student was informed that she had already voted The same thing happened to her brother, also a student, at Iowa State University. Both called Woodbury County Auditor and Election Commissioner Pat Gill to report that somebody that they don't know had already cast ballots using their name, which is fraud. Gill's office reviewed the signatures on the students' absentee requests that had been submitted before the general election and then compared them with those on absentee requests filed in the students' names before the primary, and all four forms appeared to have been signed by the same person. Those ballots during the primary that stepped it up for me, Gill said at a Friday press conference, Gill said that both the Secretary of State and then-Woodbury County Attorney Patrick Jennings advised him to report the incident to the Federal Bureau of Investigation. And Gill's report touched off an FBI investigation that came to light last Thursday. That's when Kim Fong Taylor, who is the wife of Republican Woodbury County Supervisor Jeremy Taylor, was arrested on 52 counts of election fraud. She is pleaded not guilty and is scheduled to stand trial in federal court in March in Sioux City, Iowa. The indictment, which is now unsealed, alleges that Kim Taylor fraudulently filled out absentee ballot requests and voter registration forms and cast absentee ballots on behalf of others in using other people's identity during Taylor's unsuccessful run for Congress in the 2020 primary election and his election to the county board in that fall's general election. Kim Taylor's name had been linked to suspicious election activity before. And Gill said that he received complaints about her during previous election. Her husband successfully ran for the Iowa House in 2010, but lost his reelection bid in 2012. He was elected to the county board in 2014 and was then re-elected in 2018. Now Gill when asked, Gill didn't say what years he received complaints about Taylor, but he said he dismissed them because many candidates and their spouses go door to door during campaigns seeking support. But... Taylor did not respond to requests for comment from the newspaper. His wife's attorney has also declined to comment on these charges pending. The night of the 2020 primary election, Gill saw compelling evidence that someone was casting fraudulent ballots. The report goes on to say that election workers who were processing absentee ballots and tallying write-in votes found several ballots in which the handwriting appeared very similar. Jeremy Taylor received numerous write-in votes for county board and county auditor in the election. You could tell just by looking at them that they were all filled out by the same person, Gill said. And because the ballots had already been fed through the scanner, they had been separated from the voters' affidavits, so it was impossible to tell who had submitted the ballots, so Gill was unable to take action. When processing absentee ballots during the fall general election, workers noticed some similar-looking signatures on affidavits as they opened the envelopes containing the ballots. The staff told me that there were a lot of signatures coming in on affidavits that looked like they were signed by the same person, Gill said, There were quite a few, but he didn't say specifically how many. Gill said that his office provided FBI investigators with all the suspicious ballots, absentee request affidavits, and voter registration forms. The FBI didn't seek records from previous elections, he said. The FBI investigation is ongoing and a Justice Department official on Friday declined to comment on it. Gill said that he could not give an opinion if the actions affected any of the races. In Jeremy Taylor's primary challenge of Iowa 4th District Representative Stephen King, Taylor received 18.5% of the votes cast in Woodbury County, far behind Randy Feenstra and King, District-wide, Feenstra won the primary with 37,329 votes. King received 29,366, and Taylor was a distant third with 6,418. County Republicans that summer nominated Taylor to run for county board against incumbent Democrat Marty Pottenbaum in November and Taylor won that election by nearly 2,000 votes. Taylor had resigned from the board earlier in the year after Gill determined that he could no longer hold office because he was not living at the address listed on his voter registration as, w- and was living outside the district, which is a violation of state law requiring county supervisors to live in the district in which they are registered to vote. According to the indictment, Kim Taylor, whom Jeremy Taylor met while teaching in Vietnam, approached the Sioux City residents with Vietnamese backgrounds who had limited ability to read and understand English, and she offered to help them vote. She is accused, according to the affidavit, of signing absentee ballot request forms for residents who were not present, or told residents that they could sign the forms for other family members, which is a violation of the registration affidavit in which applicants swear that they are the person named on the form. In some cases, the indictment said, Taylor filled out the ballot and signed the accompanying affidavits for people who were not even present, or telling family members that they could sign on their behalf, She then delivered these ballots to the auditor's office. Recently, Gill recalled a few occasions where he observed Kim Taylor dropping ballots in a drop box outside the courthouse and then saw Jeremy Taylor sitting in their car waiting for her. Kim Taylor voted her own ballots in both elections. Though Jeremy Taylor has not been charged, speculation swirls about his future on the county board. And the headline for this next article, Broadwater resident is determined to renovate historic motel after a truck crash. And this article was written by reporter Lauren Pennington of the Lincoln Journal-Star newspaper. Carrie Wiggins woke up to a missed phone call and devastating news on Tuesday morning. A truck driver had fallen asleep behind the wheel and had crashed into the Lazy U Motel. The accident was heart and spirit shattering, said Wiggins, who purchased the motel, which is a landmark in tiny Broadwater. She wrote, She purchased it in June of 2022 to renovate. We were really starting to see light at the end of the tunnel and excited to see some finalized improvements. And the accident kind of knocked the wind out of us, she said. It's a major setback of redoing of already what we did on a much bigger scale. Morrow County Sheriff Milo Cardenas said the building was unoccupied at the time of the crash. The semi-driver caused an unknown but large amount of damage. Wiggins, though, was no stranger to the restoration process. In 2004, she brought uh, Broadwater's community hall and turned it into a bar and grill. Wiggins also led the campaign to save the town's school buildings. One has even been converted into the village office and funds are being raised to restore the other. The Lazy U Motel which sits along U.S. 26, halfway between Scotts Bluff and Ogala, is a historical landmark and the most photographed building in Broadwater, a town of about 100 people. It's one of the first buildings built in the original Broadwater Business District, but it's really unclear when it closed as a motel, Wiggins said. In 1993, it was acquired in a back-tax sale, This is when the historic rainbow facade appeared and a few people lived in it from time to time until it became completely vacant. Wigan said she wanted to fix the motel shell and make it usable again. And while she didn't plan to operate it as a motel, she considered converting the space into rented storage units or even some storefronts. She even created an Instagram account to document the process. She had also replaced the old doors and she had even spent time and money installing all brand new windows. And even after setbacks with rotten wood flooring, collapsed, water damaged roofing, and a crash taking out the front office, Wiggins remains determined to complete the renovation. Broadwater is not a ghost town, she said. We work hard every day to keep it thriving. We have a town celebration once a year and are surrounded by neighborhood farmers and ranchers who help support the village economy. And the headline for this next article, written by the Associated Press. COVID-19 outbreak at Northwestern postpones game at Iowa. The men's basketball game between Iowa and Northwestern scheduled to be played on Wednesday January the 18th in Iowa City, will not be played due to COVID-19 health and safety protocols within the Northwestern program. The two schools will work with the Big Ten Conference to reschedule the game. All distributed tickets for the Northwestern Iowa contest will be valid for the new date and time if this game is able to be rescheduled. You are listening to the reading of the Sioux City Journal newspaper dated Wednesday, January the 18th on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. And now, let's turn to today's obituaries. John S. Adams, Jr., 71, passed away on Monday, January the 9th in Sioux City. Services will be held at a later date, Christie Smith Funeral Home and Morningside Chapel is assisting the family with arrangements. John was born on November the 11th, 1951, in Winchester, Kansas. He grew up in Lawrence, Kansas, and he spent 16 years in the United States Navy. He worked in naval shipyards for more than 30 years. He was survived by his wife, Susan Hawthorne Adams of Sioux City, and many other relatives and friends. In lieu of flowers, donations can be made to the American Red Cross. Christine Ann Ayer, 62, of Sioux City, passed away unexpectedly at her home on Wednesday, January 11, 2023. Christine was born on February 14, 1960, in Sioux City, the daughter of Robert and Diane Rose Backman. Christine graduated from West High School, Sioux City, in 1978. In February 1980, she married Mark Ayers Sr. in Sioux City, and they were blessed with two children, Melanie and Mark. Christine had a very strong and dedicated work ethic and had been employed at numerous jobs, including floral designer at Vans Florist, office service manager at Gateway, office service supervisor for Labor Ready, and office manager at Carroll Supply Company, all in the Sioux City area. And although Christine always showed her professional demeanor at work, she was known for her exuberant personality with children and friends. She prided herself in the art of baking and always tried to treat everyone to their favorite dessert. Her love for vacationing in Okoboji with her family was well known and was always her highlight event every year. Christine is survived by her two children, Melanie and Katie Dawkin, Ayers, and Mark Ayers, Jr., brother Patrick Bachman and Penny, nephew Alex Huber, and many aunts, uncles, cousins, and friends. Christine was preceded in death by her parents, Robert and Diane Bachman, sister Rebecca Beamsterfer, and her brother Brian Bachman. Melissa May Clarkson of Ponca, Nebraska, 38, passed away on Tuesday, January the 10th, at the University of Nebraska Medical Center in Omaha, Nebraska. Moore Funeral Home in Ponca is assisting with the arrangements. Melissa married Lee Clarkson on October the 4, 2008, in Dixon, Nebraska, and the couple had two beautiful children, Eli and Covey. She worked at Classic Cut's, cost-cutters, and salon volume in Sioux City before becoming a full-time mother. Melissa loved her family, especially her children, and cherished all the gatherings and time spent with them. She liked to cook and entertain for everyone. She also enjoyed glamping and spending time at the lake. She is survived by her husband, Lee Clarkson of Ponca, children Eli and Covey, mother and stepfather Lori and Jeff Langley of McCook Lake, South Dakota, father and stepmother Don and Patty Serber of Belden, Nebraska, brothers Ryan Serber of Wayne, Nebraska, Benny Serber of Sergeant Bluff, and Brent Cerber of Hartley, Iowa, and many other family members and friends. In lieu of flowers, memorials, may be directed to the family randall k randy dunlap of sioux city 70 years old passed away from this life on monday january the ninth at his home no services will be held at this time arrangements are with waterbury funeral service of sioux city iowa randy was born october fifteenth, 1952 in sioux city the son of Richard and Dorothy Hammerstrom Dunlap. He was the third of eight children. Randy attended helen High School and graduated with a degree from Briarcliff College. He worked nights at Zenith to go to school during the day, and for over 40 years, Randy worked at Tyson. He started work there because they paid well and had good benefits. He found out that he liked the work and the people who worked there which left him with many lifelong friends. In May of 1980, Randy married Sandra and Sandy Schultz. They spent much of their time camping and traveling the country by motorcycle and made it to 30 Sturgis rallies. Randy will be missed at Bear Butte when Randy and Sandra were not camping in Florida, California, Yosemite, or Yellowstone, They would camp locally. They would camp from May until October. Randy did find time to run marathons, including the Rose Bowl and the Orange Bowl. Every spring, Randy would get a call from Art Olson at Honda, asking him to put together new motorcycles from the crates for the new season's bikes. He loved to ride motocross on his Suzuki along with his Yamaha and Husqvarna. Randy didn't win a lot of trophies, but he did have a lot of fun. In Randy's later years, they got a sidecar unit to tour the country, which they took many trips on. He was an avid Nebraska football fan, and if they did not attend the game, they would drive down to Omaha to watch the game with like-minded friends and fans. Randy is survived by his wife, Sandy, sister Margie and Jerry gonzoli of South Sioux City, five brothers, Richard Dunlap, Mark and Kathy Dunlap, Andrew Dunlap, all of Sioux City, and Robert Janice Dunlap and Dan and Shirley Dunlap, both of Waterloo, Iowa, and many nieces and nephews. He was preceded in death by his grandparents, parents, and by his brother Greg Dunlap. Susan K. Hannaclaus, 70, of Howardon, passed away on Wednesday, January the 11th at Hillcrest Healthcare Center in Howardon, surrounded by her family. Condolences and other items about the services may be addressed to Meyer Brothers Colonial Chapel. Susan was born in Sioux City to William and Marion MacArthur on November 2nd. 1952. She attended school in Sioux City. After high school, she married Harry Ray Hanacloss on March 17, 1971. They went on to have four sons. She worked in the manufacturing industry for many years, obtaining employment at IPB, Supreme Packing, and Quality Park Products. Susan is survived by her sons, William of Sioux Falls, South Dakota, Brayman and Teresa of Lennox, South Dakota, James and Amy of Kingsley, Iowa, and Stephen of Rock Valley, Iowa. She is also survived by Mark MacArthur of Las Vegas, Nevada, nine grandchildren, and eleven great-grandchildren. Susan was preceded in death by her husband, Harry, parents William and Marion, brother Gary, and sister Linda. Dr. Leslie Les Hemmingson of Lamars, Iowa, 82, died on Thursday, January the 12th. Services will be held on January 21st, starting at 11 o'clock in the morning at St. John's Lutheran Church in Lamars. Johnson Funeral Home of Lamars is in charge of arrangements. Charlie A. Knopfler of Sioux City, 69, died on Friday, January the 13th, and arrangements are pending with Meyer Brothers Colonial Chapel. Richard J. Coke of Hubbard, Nebraska, 75, passed away on Wednesday, December the 28th, peacefully at his home. He was born on November the 6th in 1947 in Yankton, South Dakota, to Cyril and Felicia Noker Koch. He graduated from Cedar Catholic High School with the class of 1965. Richard served his country in the Army National Guard from October of 1966 until January of 1973, reaching the rank of Sergeant E-5. He married Jackie Snow on November 9, 1968, at Sacred Heart Church in Wynod, Nebraska. The couple has made Hubbard their home since 1979. Richard worked at Tyson for 53 years and his farm since 1979, and along with farming, Richard enjoyed fishing and camping, And, of course, his motorcycles. He won the world of wheels in his class in 1976 and 1977 with his first-place trike, Wild Thing. And he enjoyed the Sturgis rallies. Above all else, though, family was most important to Richard, especially his grandchildren. Richard is survived by his wife Jackie, son Shane, and his wife Lori, daughter Sabrina, grandchildren Brenda and J.C. Hammer, mother Felicia, brothers Maurice and his wife Vicky and Dennis, sisters Pat and her husband Jim Hames, Mary Lynn Ahrens and Bonnie and her husband George Tanderup and many nieces and nephews. Richard was preceded in death by his father and by his brother-in-law, Charles Errands, Meyer Brothers Colonial Chapel, is in charge of arrangements. Jennifer K. Lacroix, forty-nine of Sioux City, died on Saturday, December thirty-first. Services will be held on Saturday, January the twenty-first, at ten thirty a.m. Meyer Brothers Colonial Chapel, burial, Calvary Cemetery and visitation is one hour prior to service and at the funeral home. Richard Thomas Dick Larson of Sioux City, 91 years old, died on Thursday, January the 12th. The Waterbury Funeral Service of Sioux City is in charge of arrangements. Bernard Bernie McBride of Smithland, Iowa, Eighty-seven of rural Smithland passed away on Friday, January the 6th, at a Sioux City hospital. Mornings, or Meyer Brothers Morningside Chapel is in charge of arrangements. Bernard Phillip, the son Bernard F. and Hazel the Hardy McBride, was born on July 13, 1935, in Sioux City, In his early years, Bernie lived in several different locations due to his dad serving in the United States Navy. Bernie graduated from Central High School in Sioux City, then attended Morningside College for one year. He then joined the United States Marine Corps and served until his honorable discharge. On October eleventh, 1958, Bernie was united in marriage to Joyce J. Brecky at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Sioux City, Iowa. This union was blessed with two sons. They had two sons, Mike and Doug. The family made their home in Sioux City and Bernie worked for an optical company for nine years. Then he worked at Terra for 32 years retiring as a superintendent in 1998. In 2000, Bernie and Joyce moved from Sioux City to an acreage near Smithland. Joyce passed away on February 11, 2018. Bernie was a member of St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Sioux City and then St. Matthew Lutheran Church in Mapleton. He was also a member of the Smithland American Legion. His hobbies included hunting, fishing, camping, horses, woodworking, and taking care of their 80 acre farm. He is survived by two sons, Mike and Penny McBride of Pearson, Iowa, and Doug and Carmel Berglund McBride of Springfield, South Dakota. Five grandchildren, Christopher and Amber Golden of Waukee, Iowa. Tyler McBride, Casey McBride, and Savannah McBride, all of Sioux City, and Shelby McBride of Sioux Falls, South Dakota. He is also survived by two great-grandchildren, Crew and Slater-Golden of Waukee, and two brothers, Ronnie and Carol McBride of Phoenix, Arizona, and Denny and Marilyn McBride of Des Moines, Iowa. He was preceded in death by his parents Bernard F. and Hazel McBride, and by his wife Joyce McBride. Robert James McDougall of Boone, Iowa, formerly of Sergeant Bluff, 94, passed away on January the 8th at the Eastern Star Masonic Home in Boone. Nelson Berger Northside Chapel is in charge of arrangements. Robert, also referred to as Jim, Bob, or Doug, was born in Westfield, Iowa, to Edward J. and Lydia M. Lawrence McDougal on September 5, 1928. He was the youngest of six children. Jim had four sisters and a brother, all of whom preceded him in death. Jim attended Trinity High School in Sioux City and was a standout athlete. In 1945, Jim was a member of the Mile Medley Relay Team that won a state championship. That relay team was later inducted into the Sioux City Track and Field Hall of Fame. As a young man, Jim joined the United States Navy and served on several ships in World War II and the Korean Conflict. He served 5 years of active duty and 1 year in the and 2 years in the reserves. He received several medals related to his service. He was a proud veteran who always spoke fondly of his navy service. Jim married Betty Skinner on January 21, in 1950, in Sioux City, Iowa. They made their home in Sergeant Bluff where they raised their family. Their children are Cheryl S. McDougall of Minneapolis, Minnesota, Renee and Marty Montag of Boone, and Mark and Nancy McDougall of Glenwood, Iowa. Jim spent the majority of his work years in the packing house industry. He was always a hard worker and a quick learner. He mastered many skills no matter where he worked, and Jim was always proud of his work ethic. Jim lost his wife, Betty, on November 22, 2016. They had been married 66 years at the time of death. Due to health issues, Jim moved to Boone in January 2019. He had been in failing health for several months and finally succumbed to congestive heart failure. Jim is survived by his children, four grandchildren, and nine grandchildren. Barbara Jane Nielsen of Plainfield, Illinois, but formerly of Luton, Iowa, 97 years old, died on Monday, January the 9th, at Hillside Rehab and Care Center in Yorkville, Illinois. She was born July 22, 1925, in Luton, the daughter of Walton and Hallie Montague Sargason, Barbara is survived by two sons, Stephen Sarge and Phyllis of Ripon, Wisconsin, and Terry George of Hinckley, Illinois, daughter Devin Ann of Urroville, Illinois, grandchildren Kelly Ann and Eli, Robert Stephen and Amy, Jessica Jane, Remy, Breezy Marie and Julie, Theodore Oval and Daniel Thomas Teresa. Sister Julianne Jorstand of Ames, Iowa. Brother Payne Sargason of Salix, Iowa. She is also survived by several nieces and nephews and great-grandchildren. Madison, Daniel Jr., Christopher, Dominic, Landon, Emily, Ashlyn, Kayla, Caden, Isabella, Cassidy, Bodie, and Jack. She was preceded in death by her parents, parents in law, husband Orville, brothers in law, Paul Nielsen, and Roger Jorstad, and she is also survived by, or preceded in death, by her sister in law, Helen Nielsen. The family would like to thank the caring staff at Harbor Chase of Plainfield for the exceptional care they provided to Barbara over the past two years. And now on the Sioux City Journal newspaper, let's turn to the opinion page and this uh, first article, the headline for this article. Don Wooten, reasons for leaving the Christmas tree up until February the 2nd. Yes, my Christmas tree is still up. All LED light cluttered angel, top 10 feet of it. Now, I acknowledge that Christmas is three weeks past and that the 12 days of Christmas ended on January the 6th, but there are three good reasons why it continues to dominate the south end of my living room, each reason compelling in its own way. The first cites historical precedent. You see, during the Middle Ages, the Christmas season did not end until February the 2nd, the Feast of the Purification of the Blessed Virgin, It is also the Feast of the Presentation and Candlemas, three names for a single day. Candlemas was the term given to an English tradition of ending the season by lighting candles made of pure beeswax using wooden matches for the purpose. They were blessed in bundles for use during the rest of the liturgical year. Presentation refers to the Jewish practice of women bringing their newborn sons to the temple 40 days after they were born. Two turtle doves were offered as they were dedicated to God. And now there is no mention of the same ritual for female babies. Now I think the purification title seems a little bit out of place. You see, because according to Luke's Gospel, that rite had to be completed before the presentation. And back in those days, there was no tree involved in English Christmas observances. Queen Victoria's consort, Prince Albert, was responsible for introducing it. And when the handsome German nobleman married Great Britain's young queen, he brought the customs of his native land to the English court. His most impressive innovation was the Christmas tree, and Britons were captivated by the royal pair. <laughs> Some things never change, do they? And quickly, that example was followed. German immigrants brought their trees with them to this country, but they kept the trees in their own homes at first. The Christmas trees moved into public spaces when many of these newcomers were clustered in Pennsylvania towns. And most Americans, inheriting Puritan scruples, considered putting up a tree a pagan ritual and were scandalized. And back uh, for news, nearly 20 mile ice jam on the Missouri River poses risks throughout all winter. From satellite images, the surprisingly long ice jam on the Missouri River looks like a sinewy white snake Separating Nebraska and Iowa, stretching some 20 miles with intermittent gaps, the ice poses a rare low-water threat to downstream communities because it can sharply lower river levels that jeopardize access to water. And, should it break up too quickly, it could release a surge of ice that damages infrastructure in its path. The ice has been stuck in place since this past December. For now, though, conditions on the river have improved, and instead the concern is more long-term, with the big question being, what will the rest of winter bring? It's going nowhere fast. And that's a quote from David Pearson, hydrologist, with the National Weather Service office in Valley. He continues, There's good news in that we are slowly melting, but it's a slow process to undo something like this. The near-term forecast calls for ideal melting conditions, and he said the long-term outlook hints at colder weather toward the end of January, and February has a history of bringing harsh endings to winter in this part of the country. And that does it for today's reading of the Sioux City Journal newspaper dated Wednesday, January the 18th. And I'm your reader, Kevin Boucher. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. And thanks for listening.